Hi, Sarah. Hi, Allison. So big strike this week uh, against the pension reform that will raise the retirement age to 64. We'll all have to work another two years under this reform. Unions promised to bring France to a standstill. Uh, France didn't completely shut down, no. however, although lots of schools were closed and they still are as teachers went on strike. Uh, lots of disruption to metros and trains. Oil refineries were blocked. Yeah, I mean, we're really seeing a big standoff here between all of the unions, which which is rare. They're mm. all in agreement on this. Also, a lot of the population versus President Emmanuel Macron, who has really vowed to push through this reform. Yeah, it's become almost a, a point of honour for mm -hmm. him. The bill is making its way through Parliament as we speak. Uh, Macron will have the final word, though, because the government can still force the law through using a special constitutional tool. Yeah, although, it, it, will they dare to do that for such mm. a huge, controversial and issue that really impacts everyone? Yeah. We'll have to see. And in the meantime, unions are refusing to back down. They've scheduled further strike days on the 11th and 15th of March, so the tug of war continues. <laughs> In the meantime, France's farmers came to Paris. The big annual agricultural fair, the Salon d'Agriculture, was held at the massive Porte de Versailles Convention Center in the south of Paris last week. Huge. I mean, 615,000 visitors this year. It's the first full-on edition since COVID. Yeah, because agriculture weighs very heavy in France, doesn't it, Sarah? We've mm -hmm. got more farming land here than in any other country in Europe. Yeah, and, and so all the politicians show up to this fair. Mm. Macron inaugurated it, as presidents tend to do. He spent the whole day there and throughout the day was faced with questions about rising prices and, of course, the pension reform. The main hall and the main attraction are the rows of prize cows and pens of sheep and pigs. There's the occasional animal noise. You can hear the cowbells, but otherwise the animals are quite silent. They lay on their hay. They wait for their turn in the ring to get their prizes or just keep their heads low as crowds point at them and take their pictures. Yeah, maybe the breeders only bring the, the well-behaved uh, animals, perhaps. <laughs> Who knows? Or maybe they're just scared stiff. That's true, yeah. It's not necessarily the best conditions <laughs> no, for animals to be No, it seems pretty stressful. In. But mm. um, livestock actually is just one part of this whole fair. It's full of presentations from across off the world of agribusiness. There are lots of stands selling regional specialties, food specialties, a lot of meat. Mm. And to raise this meat, you need grain, lots of it, soy, corn, wheat, sunflower seeds, which have been very impacted by the war in Ukraine, which is a major exporter of grain before the war. It produced two-thirds of the world's sunflower meal. That's Laurent Rousseau, the director of the French Oil and Vegetable Protein Trade Association, who says at first, at the start of the war a year ago in February 2022, things were very, very, very complicated. The trade association brings together growers and seed producers and producers of things like colza and peas, soy, and of course sunflower, which is a major crop that feeds animals in France. 
that France does also grow a lot of sunflower itself, mm-hmm. doesn't it? You see the fields when you drive through the countryside, especially in the spring. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, but 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 it imports a lot too. So mm. before the war, France imported 400 to 450,000 tons of sunflower meal from Ukraine each year. It produced about 300 to 400,000 tons. So it was importing, you know, about the same amount as it was producing. France also imported 120,000 tons of sunflower oil. This was sold as cooking oil, vegetable oil for human consumption. So when all that was cut off pretty abruptly with the war, French producers had to jump into action. We were gradually able to compensate fairly quickly for the shortages. We increased the amount of land for French production. To give you an idea, for 120,000 tonnes of oil, you need to plant about 100,000 more hectares of sunflowers. And we were able to get those 100,000 hectares. The market demand encouraged it, and our farmers were motivated to plant sunflowers where they could. You do it through crop rotation, by replacing corn, for example, or other crops. The war in Ukraine had another impact, which was on seed growers. Ukraine is one of the largest suppliers of seeds to France and Europe, and and also to Russia, as it turns out. They have the space and the capacity to grow these plants for seed, which need to be separate from the commercial crops. When the war started, the seed growers stopped working. And now, even if we've been able to manage the production of oil and proteins, we're still very worried about seeds because Ukraine had the right conditions and had developed the knowledge for growing those seeds. So our focus now is on finding growers who have the capacity to produce what we need. For now, there are no shortages, but we need to prepare for the future, and the focus is on seeds. A real concern. For now, there are enough seeds they do keep, but they'll get used up. Laurent Rousseau says all of these shortages have really bolstered this idea of self-sufficiency. The important thing for us is to become more independent. That doesn't mean being self-sufficient because that will never happen. But in terms of vegetable proteins used for animal feed, France is the most independent country in Europe. We produce more than 50% of what we need, whereas the average in Europe is 36%. We need to preserve this and improve on it. Our goal is to produce 60 to 65% of our animal feed. And for human food, we're aiming to be self-sufficient. We are able in Europe to be self-sufficient for human food production, but the volumes are much lower than for animal feed. Self-sufficiency will be achieved through producing more, but also by changing how animals are fed. So farmers are being encouraged to feed cows more hay and grass, so they need less protein supplements. Chickens, though, they need the protein. So for now, soy, which has 50% protein, is the most efficient food. Turns out they won't eat peas. (laughs) They don't like the taste. (laughs) Sunflower meal is only about 30 to 40% protein. There are processes to compress and extract more from the seeds to make it even denser. And French companies are starting to build up factories to do that. But a lot of that was being done and developed in Ukraine. The war has jump-started a need to think about all this in France. The crisis in Ukraine destabilized us much sooner than we expected. But in any case, we were going to have to address the issue of vegetable protein supply over the next 10 or 20 years. It speeded up our awareness of being dependent. 
Now the question is, once the war is over, which I hope will be quickly, how do we work with Ukraine to develop together our independence in a balanced and sustainable way for everyone? So Ukraine produced a lot of sunflower, but also wheat, right? Yeah, yeah. It was the world's fifth largest exporter of wheat before the war, shipping mostly to developing countries in Africa and the Middle East. This year, figures have shown that they're still exporting quite a lot, although that's gone down because, of course, the war has blocked harvests and blocked um, especially transport out of Ukraine. And countries that have been used to receiving the grain are now looking elsewhere. France, Europe's number one wheat exporter, has reported an increase in demand. Apparently, exports are up 25% from last year. And it's uh, the demand is coming from clients in Algeria, Egypt, Morocco, historical clients. They've now seen a drop in supply from Ukraine. I wondered, though, how the increase in exports from France, which, of course, also involves an increase in price, has impacted smaller producers and producers of other grains. At the agricultural fair, I met Cédric Truffemus, who's a producer of Petit Epotre in the Alps, small spelt. It's the ancestor of wheat, he says. There were traces of small spelt dating back to 9000 BC. Truffemus has been growing this for 20 years. He started with his dad, who was looking for a niche crop. About 15 years ago, he and other growers secured a geographic label, an IGP, which defines the growing area and imposes crop rotations and other requirements. But that means the crop is valued as a high-quality product from a specific terroir, and it could be more profitable than wheat. And yet, Truffemus told me it's difficult to recruit farmers to plant it. We don't have enough producers in our region, so each year we try and get more farmers to convert. We're getting there. It's a slow process, despite high demand that we can't satisfy. Farmers grow quite a lot of lavender in our region, along with barley for animal feed, and quite a lot of wheat too. Often, when a farmer is already moving towards organic agriculture, small spelt is a good crop because it has more value than the non-organic crop, and the geographic label is another added value. It adds value because small spelt can be sold at a much higher price than regular wheat because the yield is much lower. You can harvest about five tons of wheat per hectare, where a small spelt yields two tons, and then you need to remove the outer layer of the grain, you lose another 35%, so you get 1.3 tons per hectare. <laughs> you have to believe in the product, says Truffemus. It sells for quite a lot. Wheat goes for 500 euros a ton, small spelt is 2,300 euros a ton. So four or five times as much for three or four times less. Not a bad deal. Truffemus sells more than 90% of his production to a mill, which turns it into flour for bakeries. The sector is well developed, so we can sell anything that is certified from any producer who wants to get involved. Truffemus says the Ukraine war hasn't really affected him and his fellow producers, as it's much a smaller scale agriculture there, though you can't help but wonder if the wheat shortage and disruption of the market is making regular wheat just that much more interesting. In any case, what is interesting about small spelt is its self-sufficiency for farmers. This grain doesn't change. It has never been modified. So I can harvest my seeds for life. Whereas if you take wheat, which has been genetically modified, it will change over time. It will no longer be wheat, but another grain. 
The fact that small spelt doesn't change is a big advantage. It allows us to keep this grain in our region. We only grow small spelt from seeds that came from this geographic zone. Monsanto won't be coming through here. Listen to this. So a challenging listen, well, but yeah. <laughs> here's what he said. Thank you for a wonderful evening. We've been able to admire the most interesting experiments modern science has to offer. Wow, wow. I'm impressed that anybody can understand that was. But well, I saw the transcript, uh, of course. Yeah, but who's, who's talking? Well, that voice is French historian and philosopher Ernest Renan. He's a big 19th century thinker. He was born 200 years ago last week on the 27th of February, 1823. But before we get into why he was important, I thought it was fun to hear a bit of that recording because it is one of the earliest audible sound <laughs> recordings in France. Sort At least of it, yeah. audible. Well, I mean, he is saying words and you can hear it's a man right, and right. you can hear it's a human voice, whereas some of the really early recordings, it just sounded like warbling. Sure. You know, so at least we know it's a human being. Right. So the recording was made on the 17th of February, 1891 by none other than the engineer Gustave Eiffel. Ah, Tour yeah. Eiffel man. Exactly. And it was recorded on a phonograph. So that's the early record player, which was given to him by the American inventor Thomas Edison. And that was during the Universal Exhibition in Paris in 1889. So how did that recording get made? Well, Eiffel had got into the habit of showing off the phonograph. It was the only one in Europe at the time mm. to his friends and family when they came to visit him on the third floor of the Eiffel Tower. So he would record their voices and everyone was amazed and excited by this, not least Renan, who was fascinated by advances in science. Right, but he wasn't a scientist? No, he started out in the church, in fact, mm. and he ended up developing a more historical and scientific approach to the philosophy of religion, which became his thing. It culminated in his most famous work, Life of Jesus, published in 1863. Oof, okay, that's a big evolution. Why don't you walk us through it? So the guy was born in Brittany and he started training for the priesthood and joined a seminary aged 15. He became a priest, but he couldn't really square up the church's teachings with his interest in philosophy. He left the Catholic Church in a 1845, although he didn't lose his faith. He was also a gifted linguist, proficient in Latin and Greek, but also Semitic languages, Hebrew and Syriac. So all of this allowed him to study ancient texts, including the Bible. He then turned to teaching and research, um, and in 1861, Napoleon III appointed him to head up a French archaeological mission to Syria and Palestine, and he started looking for material and inspiration to finally write the biography of Jesus that he'd been wanting to do. He wrote the first draft of Life of Jesus on that trip. When he returned to France, and be just before the book was published, he was elected to the chair of Hebrew at the prestigious Collège de France, 
And in his opening lecture, he referred to Jesus as an incomparable man. Ah, Jesus as a man, as a mm. historical figure. I imagine Catholics were not very happy with this. Not at all. The Catholic scholars at the college used the, what he was saying about Jesus against him, suggesting that, you know, he was a closet atheist. Mm. They got him suspended. The book was published the following year, and it did indeed present Jesus as entirely human. It also rejected the miracles of the gospel, and it showed how Christianity had developed over through the ages, really, through popular imagination. Mm, a scandal for the church. Yeah, and for the royalist Catholic right. Uh, Even the Pope weighed in, perhaps not surprisingly, he called Renan the European blasphemer. Uh, the book, though, was translated into English uh, the year of its publication, so it travelled very widely. There's since been some controversy around Renan's use of the word race uh, to denote differences between the Aryan and Semitic language groups. Hmm. What else was he known for? Well, in 1882, he gave a conference at the Sorbonne entitled What is a Nation? He was speaking against the background of France's defeat in the Franco-Prussian War, which led to Germany annexing Alsace-Lorraine in the east of France in 1871. In the conference, he said, the nation is a soul, a spiritual principle. One lies in the past, one in the present. One is the shared possession of a rich legacy of memories. The other is a present-day consent, the desire to live together, the will to continue to value the heritage we have received. In a way, he was contrasting this to the German model, which is more essentialist, if you like. It's founded on language, culture, religion and race. Ah, so for Renan, being French had a lot to do with the desire, the want to be French mm. and to adhere to certain values, I guess. I mean, there comes the idea of assimilation from there, right? Like shedding your previous identity and becoming That's, French. Yeah. And his conference, which was then published as an essay, is still widely circulated in France today and read. It's that the the heart, really, of this notion of the French national pact, you know, this idea based on the will of the people to form one indivisible nation, which is referred to in the, in the French constitution. But that notion is now increasingly contested in France nowadays, not least by the far right. Je te maudis, je te maudis, tu me voles Qui je suis, si je te suis, qu'on me Sarah, how much of your wardrobe do you reckon you wear? Ha, good question. Um, I have a few formal dresses that I rarely wear anymore. Um, there are several things that don't really fit me that I do keep out of nostalgia. Uh, my grandmother made them, or I sort of have this image of my children wearing them later. I don't know, maybe two-thirds of it? Hey, well, that's a lot better than average. Mm. Most clothes just sit in people's wardrobes, gathering dust unused. Well, that's a shame, because a lot of environmental pollution was created in making those clothes with all the dyes and the chemicals used. Mm. And making the fabrics themselves generates a lot of CO2 and other greenhouse gases. Research has shown that the clothing industry overall is responsible for around 4% of all global emissions, although the UN puts the figures uh, much higher than that. The subject isn't new, but it did come back in the spotlight over the last month with what's known as Fashion Week, which is in fact a month of shows <laughs> in New York, London, Milan and Paris. It finished in Paris just this week. It also happens twice a year, not once. Right. The British NGO Carbon Trust has calculated that these fashion weeks generate 241,000 tonnes of CO2 per year. Wow. Yeah, when you take into account all the travelling, the transport, the accommodation and so on. So fashion shows are the very visible side to 
the you know the the fashion industry but the bigger problem is the growth of so-called ultra fast fashion which encourages people to buy lots of fairly cheap clothes that's what fashion journalist and green activist Catherine Doriac told me as country coordinator for the global NGO Fashion Revolution she's campaigning to ensure that fashion has a bright and sustainable future I remember uh, during the covid there was no fashion week so everybody made films mm. so without having all the the transport the, the, the and all the co2 the, generated yeah, through that the co2 i think this is an obsolete way to show clothes fashion week in copenhagen is being lauded as a model of sustainability mm-hmm. uh, since around 2020 its president cecily thosmark she's introduced rules that participants have to apply in order to take part in the show for example at least 50% of the fabrics used in their clothes have to be from sustainable or recycled resources could that be influential on paris fashion week that would be great i don't see so much brands in france that are yeah. clean to be polite <laughs> that's a problem for example you go to uh, a luxury brand there is so much polyester and artificial materials in the collection and the problem is all the, the micro particles that goes to the ocean when you wash it there are awareness about this subject and solution but We don't see a lot of changes. But you love fashion. Yeah. Who doesn't love fashion? What is your closet like? What is your It's model of fashion? <laughs> I have clothes everywhere. Yes, I um, can see because we're here in your home here and yeah. indeed you have clothes around. And books. And books. <laughs> yeah, and two cats. And two cats. <laughs> But I mean, do you Ma- buy second hand? Do you buy new? Alors, I don't buy a lot of clothes for the moment. I have uh, enough clothes. I have clothes for... 30 years I wear them still, uh, still. today I, I have a pullover on me I bought it in September it was my only purchase of last year I use everything I have that's not the case for a lot of people right in France we use 30% of our wardrobe we are always wearing the same clothes we should of be course. not buying so much no the first problem is overconsumption is this the way forward then we need to buy fewer clothes yes buy less but better make it last so repairing repairing is a big deal better than everything else you have to know how to repair your, your clothes how is france doing on that front are people getting into the idea of repairing their clothes of buying a bit less or is this fast fashion model still the main one <clears throat> fast fashion and ultra fast fashion now with uh, primark sheen boohoo so these are very cheap brands that people buy online very cheap with a social issue environmental issue toxicity in the clothes because the clothes is uh, all polyester and, and the dyeing is toxic in the clothes industry they use 8000 chemical products 8000 So you can imagine the problem with people else, the one who make our clothes, but the one who buy the clothes and wear them. That's a big issue now for the moment for the public health. So this ultra fast fashion model, you want France to move away from that. What are you doing to try and help in that process? 
We give masterclass, we give information on our Instagram accounts. Besides that, we have workshop, repairing workshop. We also have lobbying actions towards the politicians who are making the laws. Is anybody listening? I think so. Now we are going to the high schools or fashion schools, business schools to give masterclass to make the students aware of uh, the problem, the issues of the industry. But it's not enough. And uh, there is a, a lot of greenwashing also. How big is, is greenwashing then here in France? For example, there are many studies about what the citizens want, how goods they want to be and buy well and so on. But in fact, what are people buying? Fast fashion. Fast fashion know that the citizens are aware of the issues. So they all make small collection with better materials, better Maybe. procedures, but tiny collections. And the rest of the collection are bad. So How can the consumers buy well? I don't know. Maybe second-hand, but what you find in second-hand platforms, it's 80% fast fashion now. People now, they want low cost. Now, because of the cost of living crisis. That's a problem. That's a problem. So... What about recycling, Catherine? Because there was a scandal not very long ago where there were literally mountains of clothes found in landfill in Ghana, in West Africa. In Ghana, in Chile, everywhere. Because when we recycle our clothes in France, there is only one person that will be resold in second-hand shop. All the rest is going to, not all the rest, but the majority, the majority is going to Africa countries from Europe. And uh, there are resellers on the market there, but polyester garments are not suitable for the climate, so they throw it away. And that's a very huge problem because a dress in polyester will take 200 years to degrade. So recycling, not the solution? Not the only solution, no, no, no. Why so much clothes? We are uh, producing 150 billion pieces of clothes per year for 8 billion humans. Half of that 8 million doesn't buy clothes mm -hmm. and the other half buy second-hand clothes. So why so much clothes? The most ecological garment is already in your wardrobe. You think that the future is wearing what you've already got, right? That's it. Shop your closet. There are plenty of things in your closet. If you don't want to wear it again, if you change your size, just swap it with your colleagues and friends. It's fun. Tell me, because you've been in the fashion industry so long, how hopeful do you feel today that it's moving in the right direction? There are professionals that uh, gather together to think about it. In France, we have this big association called En Mode Climat, for example. Uh, Fashion Revolution, we signed their charter. It's professional, so it's uh, industrials, weavers, brands, fashion brands. Mm -hmm. They pulled all their effort to make things go better. Uh, we have a lot of uh, small brands with another group called UAMEP. Une autre mode est possible. Another fashion is possible. We, we try to work together to make things change. But the big brand.
experience, the big uh, luxury or not luxury fast fashion, ultra fast fashion, have the market. They sell 95% of the clothes. So it's David against Goliath, but at the end it's David who's winning. So keep up the fight. Keep on the fight, yes. So that's it for the show. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. We'd love to hear from you. Why not send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France, and find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, March the 23rd. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye, Alison. Je te maudis, tu me voiles Qui je suis, si je te suis Qu'on me pardonne De vouloir être comme Tu es mode Je te maudis, je te maudis Tu me voiles Qui je suis, si je te suis Je me raisonne Pour ne pas être comme Tu es Être comme